A special guest today on Vince and Jason Save the Nation, your favorite Habibi. Next. Welcome to Vince and Jason Save the Nation. I'm Vince Colonnais alongside Jason Nichols and a great guest today who I'll let Jason introduce. But in the meantime, I want to make sure that you subscribe to our great show by finding us anywhere you can find a podcast and for sure on YouTube. That's on the Daily Caller YouTube channel. Like, subscribe, comment, and share that bad boy so more people can do it as well. Jason Nichols, who do we have today? So today we have my good friend, my Aki, my very good buddy, Siraj Hashmi. He's a social media superstar, uh, the inventor of The List, independent independent media uh, expert, and he's going to come in and share some of his views with us today. We are super happy to have him. Everybody, Siraj Hashmi. I'm going to give you a virtual clap right now. Um, Siraj, what's going on? How you feeling, brother? Ah, uh, Doc, I'm doing great, man. Thanks so much for having me. And uh, wow, calling me an expert. That's, I don't know if that's <laughs> insulting at this point, given what the experts have told us about everything in the world and how we can't <laughs> trust them. So uh, I will take that as a compliment, but also be cautiously optimistic that you're just not dunking on me like everyone else. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, I'll just say um, you are an expert, except at when we tried to do a YouTube show and it got three views every episode. So <laughs> we, are, we are obviously not experts in that regard. But so I upgraded to Vince Colonnais. We're getting like 12 views. Yeah. And, and uh, we're... We're rolling now, but I still have love for you. So that's, you know, that's why you're here right now. Um, so I, I wanted to ask you really, you know, right now, you know, everybody's been watching the Olympics. First of all, I want to give a shout out to Katie Ledecky, you know, a Marylander uh, who just got a gold medal and is a legend in, in the sport of swimming. But I wanted to talk to you a little bit about just mental health in sport. We've seen Simone Biles has just dropped out of the Olympics. Um, and she will not be competing in the individual uh, gymnastics competition that I believe is going on later today. Um, and I wanted to ask, what, what's your initial reaction? There's been all over the political spectrum. We've seen Charlie Kirk come out and criticize her and say that she's un-American and, you know, that she's letting everybody down. And then you've seen other people come to her uh, to her aid and say, wait a minute, look at some of the things uh that she's gone through and we need to be more conscious of mental health and i wanted to kind of get your perspective on that you know it would have been it would have been better for simone biles if she had just tested positive for marijuana i mean at this point everybody <laughs> seems to find that that's the like the one unifying bit that like oh my god simone biles she's going through something she smokes some marijuana you know like it's always, if, if Sherry, if Shakari Richardson had just said, I'm not going to be running in track and field because I'm depressed, she would have gotten dunked on by everyone on the right. But she smoked marijuana. And so it was like a unifying thing where people were like, hey, maybe we shouldn't be penalizing athletes for smoking marijuana. Uh, I feel like Simone Biles, who's getting a bad rap for her mental health. I mean, we all go through something. I go through something. I could probably relate to her. Uh, despite the fact that I'm not a multi-gold medal uh, Olympic gymnast. But like the wear and tear in your body that gymnastics presents is unimaginable, unfathomable. I cannot imagine going through what Simone Biles has gone through over the course of her career. I heard she's had a lot of ankle issues. And look, I saw like a really good tweet the, uh, in the wake of this whole thing with Simone Biles that like, it may not be like the exact 
argument I would I would make, but it is certainly a different perspective. And that is when Tom Brady has an off day, he throws an interception or two. When a gymnast like Simone Biles has an off day, like they could die, like they could land on their head, get, you know, become paralyzed, lose cognitive function, you name it. Um, especially when you're doing as many flips and twists and trying to basically, you know, literally, you know, flip around like a stick. I mean, it's, it's crazy. Yeah. So I was yeah, thinking, I, yeah, I'm with, I'm with Simone Biles on this. I think you should take all the time you need and, and, and focus on your mentals. I was thinking about like, you know, you ever jump off a diving board and try and do a flip and you, and you don't commit to it. And then you just guaranteed belly flop. If you do that, mm -hmm. like, <laughs> yeah. it's like, exactly. you really, you need to really commit to it. And so that I do find that argument compelling. It's like, look, look at the craziness that she has to undergo in midair. Now, I, I'll admit that I'm a little ambivalent on this issue because I, I, I could definitely see merit to some, some of both arguments, right? So like the Tom Brady argument that people are making is like, if Tom Brady just came in in the third quarter and was like, hey, look, everybody, I just need to take a mental health break. I'm going to check out for the rest of the game. He'd be in for a lot of criticism because, you know, you kind of, mm -hmm. and, and, and in some sense, you think, I almost think justifiably so. I, I got to say, my gut reaction to this was like, maybe sexist, maybe also like, like I, I think of Simone Biles, like carbon frozen as a child, right. As this like teenager. So my first reaction was one of like deep sympathy for her. Like as soon as she comes out and she's like, yeah, I'm not in the right headspace to be doing this. I was like, oh yeah, that makes sense. That was my reaction for her. But then when I heard the Tom Brady comparisons, I was like, actually, that's a good point. I would have a different reaction if it was like this super accomplished dude. And I'm, I'm like much harder on men crying mental health problem than I yeah, am on women. I, I get what you're saying. I mean, there is, certainly is a double standard when it comes to the way society views mental health struggles between men and women. Like, yeah. you know, men are designed to be tough. I mean, people were dunking on, Adam, I mean, I'm sure we're going to talk about the 1-6 commission, but people were dunking on Adam Kinzinger for crying during the, uh, his testimony or during his, uh, his, his speech. And you know, while crying isn't, it, it should not be shunned. Um, I think that everyone's going to be making a case that when it comes to men showing emotion, uh, it's an act. And I think there are some people who find themselves, they need to be consistent. And so now they've traversed over to saying, oh, when women show emotion, especially a multi gold Olympic gymnast like Simone Biles, it has to be an act or else I'm just a hypocrite. Right. No, right. It's, it's it, different cases for each person. I mean, you yeah. can, you, you just have to look at it by as a case by case basis and not just put a generalization, a broad brush onto every single mental mental health struggle. I mean, I, I tend to look at mental health like physical health. Um, you know, if she had a, uh, a broken ankle, which by the way, she competed with a broken foot before and won gold. Like, you know, I, I think I was incensed. I understood some of the arguments until I saw Charlie Kirk's tweet, who I'm not <laughs> sure has done anything for his country, to be honest. Um, like he's no military service, no community service. That's nonpartisan. I, I don't know what he's done. But what I, what I will say, maybe he has, you know, maybe he has, maybe there's something that I, I'm missing. But what I will say is that, um, you know, I, I think I was frustrated by saying, by people saying that she owes her country something when she's given us 27 gold medals, 
you know, given her entire body to this sport and her safety, like you pointed out, and the, the fact that she was she is a sexual assault survivor. And guess who covered it up? It was USA Gymnastics. So if anybody has betrayed Simone Biles, it's been, you know, establishments within the, you know, U.S. sports world, um, you know, rather than the other way around. And yeah, to act I... like she owes them something or she owes us something, you know, when she's given so much, I think is is absolutely absurd. Um, and it, and it, it's it, it's frustrating to me to see people criticize her that way. Now, I think some of the comparisons and I think what Vince was saying about Tom Brady, there's a good point. And, and, you know, I started to think, you know, kind of mixed sports stories because I was thinking about, you know, Ron Rivera just came out and said he was frustrated with unvaccinated players because he's a cancer survivor. And, you know, he's in these settings and he's like, you know, I, I'm vulnerable here. I could literally get sick and, you know, have a really difficult time. Um, and I started to think about Jordan and when he played that game with the flu. Mm -hmm. And I had always thought, man, what toughness, what bravery. But then I started to think, like, was that a little bit selfish? Like, you know, because of the fact that he could infect other players. What if Magic Johnson was playing back then? You know, and, you know, because Magic Johnson came back when he was already known to be positive in, with HIV. Sure. Um, he came back, he was a power forward, he was fat, but he still played pretty well. Um, Magic Johnson, if he had been on that floor, he would have had to sit out because Jordan decided to play with the flu. You know what I yeah. mean? So I, I, you know, I wonder about all of that, but, you know, the bottom line is that your physical or mental health um, at the end of the day, you know, it's, it's like, sometimes I watch boxers when they, you know, when, when they sometimes take a knee or something and everybody criticizes what a coward people who would never step in a ring ever in their lives sit mm -hmm. there and, and from a couch say, Oh, that guy's a coward or whatever your physical and mental health. At the end of the day, you're going to have to live with that for the rest of your life. Right. And if you have to protect yourself, I think protecting yourself is, is paramount and it, and is the thing to do. Yeah, one thing I wanted to point out, obviously, uh, one of my buddies was telling me that the only reason that Simone Biles didn't retire yet is because she wanted to make sure one of the victims of uh, the Dr. Larry Nasser on uh, USMG Gymnastics, who's been already convicted of multiple sexual uh, misconduct allegations, uh, assault uh, being one of them, uh, I think the main one, is that the one who, because he abused so many girls on that team, uh, basically her being on the squad, Simone Biles being on the squad, um, she did it so that the U.S. couldn't try and ignore that issue anymore. And apparently yeah. she's one of the last wow. ones he abused that is still in the age range to make that U.S. team. So um, I don't think that's being reported nearly as much. But yeah, yeah you know, know mental that. health is such an important issue. I think we look at it so differently than we did 30 years ago. Um, and, you know, it's, for like Magic Johnson and Michael Jordan, it's like not for them. It wasn't about a willingness not to compete. They wanted to compete. Now, if their mentals weren't in it. Now, think of like, you know, I can the only person I can really think of who thought not he wasn't like a decorated athlete. 
but people thought he quit on his team. And that was Jay Cutler when he played for the Chicago Bears. Uh, and he was supposedly injured during the NFC Championship against the Green Bay Packers about, you know, eight, you know, seven, eight years ago. And um, it was one of those things where you look at it and um, it just so happens that maybe he did quit on his team. But, you know, maybe Simone Biles did quit on Team USA. We're not saying she, she did, but the way we look at mental health now has certainly opened the Overton window to give us the idea that, you know, mental health is just as important as physical health, as you said, Jason. I think and if you're not in it, uh, you risk not performing nearly as well in yeah. certain uh, fatal to very mortal, uh, heavily mortal injuries. I, I think we're also on guard as a culture now, anybody who's paying attention to sort of like the lazy narcissism of claiming like a mental health claim, which is like, yeah. like you're looking around and like somebody's like, oh, like trying to draw attention to themselves. Like there's so many examples of people doing that, using cheap ploys to do it which is actually an argument for why you don't think that, I, I don't think that Simone Biles is inventing anything here. And the right. reason I say that is because in order to reach the level of support that she's at, you are a hard worker. You spend literally every second that you're awake sacrificing so many other aspects of life in order to perfect this skill and this talent. Um, you know, somebody else who I'm thinking of, as you were talking about, like somebody who basically had to get away from the game because of mental health is not an athlete at all. It's a comedian, Dave Chappelle. Like he disappeared because of his mental well-being, and, yep. and he came back stronger than ever. I mean, he's, he's still a great performer, really talented guy. I, I don't look at that guy and go, man, that was like a lazy sort of narcissistic ploy. It was a guy who genuinely was at the top of his game, a guy who clearly yep. puts in the work a guy who clearly has all the talent in the world because he actually worked for it. And so I, I think when you get somebody of Simone Biles caliber making a claim like this, you can't look at it as, oh, that was just a phony attention grabbing maneuver and all that. I, I just don't believe it. She just works too hard to be the kind of person who would default to laziness. Oh, for yeah. sure. And that's a great point you bring up about Dave Chappelle. I mean, yeah. that's uh, in terms of like uh, actual parallels being at the top of your game and just quitting, Chappelle and Simone Biles, perfect analogy. Can sum it up any yeah. better? Yeah, I agree. I agree 100%. Um, and I think, you know, now we're becoming more cognizant of uh, mental health, whereas in the past, we wanted people to run themselves in the ground, get addicted to drugs, you know, and fall off the map. And then we look at them as, you know, cautionary tales. And, and I think it's good that some people are saying, look, I need a break. I, I need a minute. You know, um, I need some time to get myself together. Um, you know, in terms of all the times, uh, think of all the times. Sorry to cut you off, Jason. Look at Josh no Gordon, NFL wide receiver, uh, constantly going through it. But he's constant. He was constantly testing positive for marijuana, and at that, at, at like a certain point, it became it became like, oh man, this guy seriously has a problem, or they think that he has a problem. He hasn't revealed he has a problem, but at least he's tested positive for marijuana so many times and getting suspended by the league that maybe that it's actually gotten people to re-examine, Hey, maybe we should relook at our, at the NFL policy on players testing positive for marijuana because so many players, both in the NFL and the NBA, I'm sure in the NHL and, and, and in major league baseball, at least the four major uh, professional sports in the U S are, are use abuse, either abusing substances or using substances that 
probably in the drug test would probably come up as if they if it came up as positive they would be suspended yeah no absolutely um and i gotta say i love jay cutler even though i hated him as a football player <laughs> i i love jay cutler uh, the one story that i love about jay cutler was some guy came up to him and was like hey i went to vanderbilt i was a huge fan of yours uh i i you know i live in denver now and you know you're my favorite player and jay cutler just stood there and was like don't care don't care. <laughs> the entire time the guy's talking. <laughs> I love that story. He's just like, don't care. Don't care. <laughs> Absolute legend. Absolute yeah. legend. Oh, I love Jacob. <laughs> like, you know, like all the, he froze all the bank accounts from Kristen Caval. Is it Cavallari? I don't, I don't know. Whatever his wife his was. His ex-wife. <laughs> he froze all the bank accounts so she couldn't get any money. Man. He is like straight up toxic boys up. Um, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a fan of everything except for his football playing ability. He he must, he must listen to a lot of future. Right, right. Exactly. (laughs) He follows Hoodville. Taking lessons. Um, (laughs) Uh, so, uh, you know, you brought up, uh, the January 6th commission. We heard some really, uh, jarring testimony yesterday. Um, from a lot of the police officers who were present. Um, And there is, you know, there's been a lot of criticism. Uh, There are some people on the right who are, you know, advocating for Kevin McCarthy to punish uh, two members of his caucus that are on the January 6th commission. And Siraj, one of the things that I, I, I find so interesting about your politics is like, I, I really think that you really go issue by issue and you really look at things fairly. You're not team red or team blue. Um, and I'm wondering what you think about the January 6th commission altogether um, and about some of the reactions, uh, even some of the sideshows that we've seen from, you know, Matt Gates and MTG and some of the other people. Uh, do you think that this is a, a good exercise, a waste of time? Uh, what do you think? I don't think it's a waste of time because I think there's actually some value add to the conversation. And look, you know, I've seen uh, people try to castigate and criticize the police officers who testified in front of Congress during this commission, uh, particularly the ones who have had more racially charged stories, um, specifically the black police officers, I believe um, Harry Dunn uh, specifically, recounting uh one instance in which the there was a a lady in a pink MAGA hat calling him the n-word and then getting a mob of people to then shout the n-word at him obviously horrific um i you know there are a lot of people who are trying to accuse him of lying and i think people discount or dismiss the fact that if you lie to congress that's a felony and I don't see any reason why he would lie. Of course, I'd like to see video evidence of this actually taking place because everybody had their phones out. Um, I'm hoping that something comes up, but does that change the story of what happened during the January 6th Capitol Hill siege? Absolutely not. And I think at this point, uh, there are a lot of different narratives. I think one thing that Republicans have not focused on enough is that if they really wanted to get down to the bottom of what happened 
on January 6th, uh, they have not asked the one question that I see a lot of people in Trump world asking, and that is who shot Ashley Babbitt? I haven't seen many Republicans say, hey, maybe we should use this January 6th commission to find out not only how people got into the building, but how Capitol Police officer shot uh, this woman uh, entering uh, this particular chamber and wasn't directly actually attacking a specific individual, they were just climbing through a window. They haven't asked that question. So I don't know what they're doing. I actually think it's probably more of a wasted effort on the Republicans end than I do think on the Democrats end. And, um, you know, with respect to Kevin McCarthy trying to punish Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, look, there's, there's no question there's a, a fractured ideology within the Republican Party, just like there is with Democrats. You have neoliberals versus progressives, just like you have establishment Republicans like Kinzinger and Cheney, the, the neoconservatives, against the more nationalist populace, uh, who I think that I think the Republican Party is embraced more of, uh, simply because Trump is still kingmaker. Um, do, look, I'm in the position of just like, let them fight. Okay. If they, you know, if, if people, if people want to persuade others into uh, thinking that their ideas are good, they will make compelling arguments for them. If truth is on your side, you have nothing to fear. Um, At the same time, should I think they'd be punished? Look, I don't think anybody should be punished for this, uh, for, for simply trying to find out what happened on January 6th. Uh, just like I don't think people should be punished for trying to figure out if there was widespread election fraud during the 2020 presidential election. If you're trying to find out the truth, you should be encouraged to find out the truth, even if you, even if in the end you turn out and find that there was nothing wrong or there wasn't any malfeasance or, or, or wrongdoing. Um, we're very much in the, in the uh, a mental framework as a society that like anybody asking questions about anything should be punished. And I think that should be frowned upon and immediately condemned. People should be allowed to ask questions when they think something's up. Yeah, I my beef with um, what played out this week has been my consistent criticism of, of everything leading up to this moment is that this is not, in my view, a fact-finding mission. It is a political exercise that's been orchestrated by Nancy Pelosi in order to emphasize the difference that she has with her political opponents and to sort of cast a wide net, not only on the people who are who actively were involved in going into the Capitol for that riot on January 6th, but to suggest that anybody who supported Donald Trump from the get uh, should be you know, should wear the shame of January 6th. So there's a lot of political advantage in Nancy Pelosi keeping all of this alive. That's how I've been looking at it. And there's a bunch of reasons to think that. Like you heard yesterday, Liz Cheney start in her commentary that you know, if we don't get to, if we don't, if we leave this uninvestigated, that this will be a real threat to our democracy. Well, there's no evidence that it's uninvestigated. The FBI has never exerted more resources on any incident in American history than than January 6th. They have, I believe, some 540 uh, charges so far, far, uh, basically hundreds of charges, a couple hundred more that are pending as soon as they can find out who exactly uh, they've tracked down. They've exerted incredible resources into this. They've arrested a lot of people. A lot of people stay within jail. There's real investigations going on. And um, another component to this is this is now the 18th such hearing that Congress has conducted. Now it's done under the auspices of 
Nancy Pelosi calling it the whatever she's calling it, giving it some sort of official status. But there have now been 18 congressional hearings dedicated to looking at January 6th, 19 if you include the impeachment of Donald Trump, the second impeachment of Donald Trump as well. Um, and then finally, to your point, I actually think it's a great idea to get answers to all of those questions, including who shot Ashley Babbitt, what was the triage decision making that went into shooting an unarmed protester um, that I think the American public Trump. is owed an explanation like that. Uh, and also, what happened um, ahead of January 6th? We've been told a lot that, well, we knew all this information about what was coming. Okay, if that's the case, why wasn't Capitol Police adequately prepared uh, in order to stop people from getting into the Capitol? And why such a mixed reaction from, from the Capitol Police? In some cases, you saw like fighting between Capitol Police and the rioters. And then in other places, you saw Capitol Police just saying, hey, come right in into the side of the building. They were welcoming people in. Clearly not a unified message uh, in, in order how to deal with this. And that is, those are catastrophic mistakes that need to be resolved. And uh, real questions should be asked about that. Yeah, no, I, I agree that real questions should be asked about it. The question is why uh, Republicans won't participate. I, I agree 100% with Siraj that if they want answers to these questions, it, it would be uh, a good time for them to actually participate, for them for them not to originally try and stonewall this process. They could ask all of these questions. You know, I, I think that these are um, perfectly fine, you know, um, to ask. You know, I, I, I disagree with calling Ashley Babbitt a protester. Like she was actively breaking the law and she was, uh, you know, a rioter. You can call her a rioter or something like that. I think like rioter that. is a fair, that, I think yeah, rioter is And that is doesn't mean she needed to be shot. I don't agree, right. you know, I, well, I'd say that there needs to be an active investigation into her shooting. Absolutely. You know what I mean? I, did, I don't like to see anybody get shot who's unarmed. You know, there are some people who are all of a sudden, you know, oh my God, unarmed shooting. And then, you know, forgot about the dozens of unarmed shootings, sometimes of children. Uh, right. You know, and all of a sudden, you know, now they're outraged about it. Um, I I will tell you, I've been consistent. You know what I mean? I don't like seeing unarmed people get shot. Um, I also think, you know, there there are some mitigating circumstances in, in this case where maybe the police officer uh, really legitimately felt threatened. Um, but there's, you know, there, I, I think an investigation makes sense. And, you know, I think, you know, transparency makes sense in, in this case. You know what yeah. I mean? There should be transparency. You know, we uh, on the left have demanded to know the identity of police officers who, who uh, may have committed uh, acts that we felt were excessive. And I think, you know, knowing the identity of this officer and also law enforcement protecting this officer and his family um, I think is is important um, and, and investigating that. And from what you said, FBI has investigated a lot of things. They probably have investigated the shooting and, and come up with uh, some sort of conclusion that the officer was not guilty of anything. Yeah, that's, um, a great, that's a great point you bring up about uh, the, the, the sort of the officer's name and the transparency surrounding Ashley Babbitt, because yeah, it's, I think it's great to be consistent. More power to you, Jason, about yeah. specifically finding when when an unarmed person gets shot, we find out the name of the officer within 24 hours in most cases, usually one to three days at the at the very 
laced. The fact that it's been six months since since Ashley Babbitt's shooting on January 6th, and we still don't know the name of the Capitol Hill police officer who shot her, I'd say is very troubling. And the fact that, uh, I mean, it's not like Capitol Police play by different rules than the rest of law enforcement across the United States. It just so happens that given the nature of this particular event uh, in this siege on Capitol Hill, and the fact that a Trump supporter, a white woman, was shot and killed, all of a sudden you're seeing people who normally are demanding transparency from uh, police uh, police departments are saying, no, 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 don't, don't, don't give that name out. Don't give that name out. Although I will see a couple, I, I will see a couple like hashtag resistance libs on Twitter saying, give that Capitol Police officer a Congressional Medal of Freedom or something like that. And it's just like, if you, you know, if you do that, yeah. you're revealing his identity. Or you're revealing the right, right. Yeah. that seems yeah, so, seems a bit self-defeating yeah that doesn't make any sense and you know i i understand um the the concerns you know about his safety and the safety of his family and the fact that this was you know even a bigger event um in terms of its national implications than even some of the the really high profile cases that we've that we've experienced that were local, um, so I understand the concerns that this man I would assume felt like he was threatened, felt like he was under siege. He gave a warning, you know. Um, there's you know people at least the law enforcement community says that he gave a warning. There were people out there screaming "gun, gun, gun." And, uh, you know, she proceeded to try to enter into the building. Doesn't mean she should have been shot. I'm not sure what the reaction should have been um, or whom he was protecting. We don't, there's so many things that we don't know. And I think that these are, this could be an opportunity to talk about some of these things and not make yeah. it a, a political issue. Can um, but the Republicans, we know if they had had Jim Jordan, he would have made it the Ashley Babbitt show instead of actually looking at the issue as a whole and tried to make this a political, you know, an opportunity to, to spike the political well, football. Let me, let me ask Siraj about that. Do, do you think it was a good idea for Pelosi to boot Jim Banks and Jim Jordan? Oh, man, you know, it definitely doesn't help. Um, I mean... I think we all knew it was going to be some circus act was going to happen. Um, I'm sure that it was an it was a move to try to control the message coming from the January 6th commission, um, because I think I think Pelosi's calculus was well. If we're going to have this, we might as well try to make it benefit our side at the very least, rather than completely undermine its credibility as a political circus because it would just be fraught with, you know, arguments and shouting and uh, basically no one would be able to get a word in edgewise. Um, I think Pelosi at least recognizes that it may be seen as more partisan than say a 9-11 commission, um, but at the very least, they will be able to withdraw information that could probably help them in the long run in this whole information battle. Yeah. I mean, it, it is, you know, bipartisan though. I mean, no, I'm not saying it's not bipartisan. Yeah. I'm just saying it, 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 it's, you know, 
it's not like everyone within the Republican Party believes the same thing. You have Republicans like Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger who have basically been uh, dismissed entirely by the Republican Party and conservatives in general is basically see, they're basically seen as Democrats today. So that's where I'm saying like it is there are Republicans on it, but there are Republicans on it who specifically are not seen as part of that majority ideology within the Republican Party, if you, if, you, if, you, if you know what I mean. You know, one of the things that I think is playing out here, too, that really frustrates um, Republicans is the uh, apparent you know, double standard at play when it comes to political violence, uh, because you know, we see a riot play out on January 6th, and the media has been really insistent on referring to January 6th as an insurrection, for instance. And we, we heard a lot of testimony yesterday suggesting that the people who went into the building were terrorists. That was the word that was used pretty universally by both the witnesses and the, the lawmakers on the stand referring to terrorism. Which, uh, by the way, I resent, okay? You know, <laughs> you know our, people, our people like form organizations and like they, I'm kidding. <laughs> basically, it's much more organized. ISIS yes, and Al Qaeda. ISIS and Al Qaeda basically are like, holy shit! We just had to walk into the Capitol to be considered terrorists. Like, why didn't we think of that? <laughs> but so, but the, the the use of of words like that are designed to prejudice the audience interpretation of those events versus right. the riots that we saw play out uh, over the course of the last year. I mean, think about in December um, there was a. Uh, an organization of police chiefs that reviewed all the data of the riots that we saw last year. And what they found is that thousands of police officers were wounded in rioting in American cities uh, across the country in the wake of George Floyd's death. And, um, and you, of course, saw the routine attacking of the federal building in Portland and on and on and on. Uh, and so many of the prosecutions uh, involved in those cases, including in cases that had extensive video evidence to support the prosecution. In other words, like you really could actually secure a prosecution. Many of those prosecutions were dropped nationwide. They weren't taken seriously. Uh, and now what we have is an ongoing event, um, like an ongoing litigation of an act of political violence that reflects poorly on, on right-wingers uh, that is disproportionate to the reaction that uh, law enforcement and specifically Congress and specifically prosecutors had to... Um, the political violence of, of the last year, which is just, it's not good for our system. I don't think, Suraj, well, I don't think it's, it's healthy. It's disproportionate because they're two entirely different scenarios. You have people rioting and looting in the streets versus people actually starving into the Capitol building. Um, I, you know, I would, I don't know if I would even attribute the label political violence, to even the rioters and looters during the 2020 post George Floyd protests that then, for some of them turning into riots. This, uh, I would not say even this particular act of uh, storming the Capitol was an act of political violence. I think there were people who were being violent, but I think it was so disorganized and so, like it's not, it wasn't monolithic. It wasn't like, hey, let's go, uh, let's go beat up some Capitol police officers. Let's go beat up some uh, politicians and, and right. bring a, a, a noose, which they actually did. They brought an actual noose, like a hanging noose 
uh, right outside uh, the Capitol building. I don't know if they intended on using it. Uh, you can just, uh, you know, it was there. I will just say that uh, the French did way worse uh, during the French <laughs> Revolution. Um, but this in particular, uh, this act, this, this, this protest turned into riot. I think we can all agree that at the very base, it was a riot. It was yeah. a protest that, yes. that turned into a riot on the Capitol Hill. Um, now, when people compare it to 9-11, Look, you can make those comparisons to 9-11, but they do not equate to each other. 9-11 was a malicious, uh, intentional act to destroy, uh, to take advantage of both the, uh, it was an attack on our, uh, the, the national security apparatus through the Pentagon, it was an attack on our financial sector through the World Trade Center, and it was just an attack all in general against the American Republic uh, to basically for Al Qaeda to flex its muscles and say, hey, you're not the number one power in the world anymore. Um, it was by far the most heinous act I've seen in my lifetime. And I get really mad when people say that January 6th was just as bad, if not worse than 9-11, because people actually got into the Capitol. Right, building. the Lincoln Project and, guys are saying that. So I don't, insulting, I don't know that I've ever us. heard that from anybody. Yeah, I've seen it online. I've seen, you know, like there are terminally online takes that I've seen. Well, the, the Lincoln Project, the Lincoln Project guys have been saying that. The, the Lincoln Project yeah. has done it. I've seen um, a number of people, some politicians do it on Twitter, maybe not out loud, because if you put that on a soundbite, think of how I've, bad that sounds. <laughs> I've seen people compare um, the failures with COVID to 9-11. I've seen that, but I've never seen anyone compare January 6th with, uh, what is it, three to five deaths uh, associated with it. And, you know, and 9-11, which was hundreds of, of Americans. I just want to just go to a couple of things. Terrorist, you know, the definition of terrorist. Um, according to, to the Oxford uh, Dictionary, a person who un, who uses unlawful violence and intimidation, especially against civilians, in pursuit of political aims. So to me, like, if you want to use the strict definition and not the, the connotation that we use of people hijacking planes and bombing buildings, a person who uses unlawful violence and intimidation, especially against civilians in pursuit of political aims, you could make an argument that there were terrorists amongst those people, including people like the Oath Keepers and and some of these militia groups that showed up armed. They, you know, they had bear spray, they had tactical gear. Um, you know, you could make an argument. Was it as bad as 9-11? That's absurd. Was it as I bad guess... as some of the terror attacks we've seen in terms of the, the cost in, 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 in lives? Absolutely not. But was it, you, you know, a use of a certain level of violence and intimidation, you know, in order to achieve a political aim? Yes. And the other thing, the other definition that I'll go to is insurrection. Um, and you and I have, have gone through this before, a violent uprising against an authority or government. And seems like that actually fits what happened on January 6th. Again, everyone takes the connotation and compares it to other things in other countries. Um, and when you take the strict definition of what these words mean, they actually do fit 
into this. Now, are people using this as a political, you know, because they know the connotation and using it, you know, as a political uh, weapon here, for sure, because that's the environment we live in. But when we look at the, the actual definitions, those words actually do fit. No, I, I, I don't dismiss that argument at all. And, uh, you know, I think, you know, I've actually heard over the course of the, in, in the election season, specifically when it came to how President Trump was being treated by this, by sort of like the deep state, that there needs to be basically an insurrection you know, a retaking of the government by people who are on Trump's side, people who have, you know, a similar vision for America as the president, because there are just so many competing visions for how they were going to govern. Um, I've heard those arguments. And it, it's kind of interesting how sort of that argument was flipped on its head a little bit to say that things that happened on January 6th was not an insurrection because uh you know they were disorganized or they were um you know not a, a cohesive collective of, of people who had an aim of overturning the presidential election and you know preventing congress from certifying the election results um i can concede that at least by that definition that probably fits i think what's important though is that uh in order to actually deem we, we don't know the full, I, I could say, for example, because it was so disorganized, we don't know the full intent of every single individual in that crowd. Some people were probably around, you know, along for the fun. I think there were a lot of individuals who probably had specific aims to try to overturn the election results. And then, of course, we can't discount the fact that, you know, there are, it's not uncommon for there to be agitators within specific crowds to try to get stuff going to try to make things a little bit more tense and right. a little bit more violent. That's not unheard of. Will a, uh, will a commission, will this commission find out whether that happened? I doubt it, but if the FBI were interested in finding out the truth, I'm sure we probably would have seen those facts already. Unfortunately, I think that a lot of entities within our uh, federal law enforcement um, are compromised and I don't know if we'll ever know the full truth of what happened on that day. Okay, Siraj, you were just talking about uh, the insurrection uh, and the and the use of the phrase, and you can understand it. I my my point in this is like you know I just you're watching what's happening, and I think that um, you know, as usual the media has basically stripped out all of the nuance. So like you kind of have to take a side in your coverage, and then he and then all of your coverage has to basically hew in that direction. And we've seen a couple of prosecutions already go through for people who were in the Capitol uh, building. And one of them, a guy just got served a, a lot of prison time. Uh, he's going to serve um, at least the next, I think, seven months. I, I forget his actual prison sentence. But what he ended up actually doing on January 6th is he went into the building and took a selfie with the guy who was dressed like a Viking and committed no acts of violence. And in fact, prosecutors said that. But during the hearing, Prosecutors kept referring to his action as being a part of domestic terrorism. And I think that that's, that's preposterous. So my, my view on this is like, why can't we just prosecute people for the laws that they actually broke and not turn this into a, an hysterical tactic for further dividing the country? 
which I, I think is really genuinely happening right now. Yeah, I, I don't, I wouldn't blame the, you know, a bad prosecution for dividing the country, but I do think um, that we should prosecute people based on the seriousness of their crimes. Yeah, yeah. There were obviously some people who committed some serious crimes that day. There were obviously people, I think this idea that it was all spontaneous uh, is, is, you know, not borne out by some of the, the things that are going on in terms of uh, the prosecution of some of the groups that I'm, I'm talking, that I mentioned before. Um, I think some of this was, you know, at least preconceived by a few individuals. And like Siraj said, I think some individuals may have had an agenda uh, to rile everybody up. And a lot of other people were there probably peacefully, you know, thinking that they were going to come peacefully. Do, do you and guys... Do you guys buy into the idea that maybe the FBI or, or its informants played a role in inciting uh, any of the violence or going into the Capitol? I can't discount building? it. I can't dismiss it entirely because, for one, I don't know. And uh, two, I think right. there is um, – I think the incentive to try to make things worse than they were um, was there. I think there's – in pure legal lexicon, there seemed like there was motive. Right. And um, the FBI has done this a lot in the past. We've seen we have plenty of real world examples where we actually know the evidence where yeah. you've had uh, people encouraged to commit crimes by people who are connected to the FBI or even enabled to do that. And the big I mean, example, just look at this whole thing with Gretchen Whitmer. Yeah, it was the FBI who were instigating this whole this whole kidnapping plot against her more so than the actual people who they were entrapping. And then if you just look at like every single post 9-11 entrapment case with the FBI involved, it looked like they were literally trying to recruit people to commit acts of terrorism and then just say, hey, we gave you the explosives. You said you're going to do it. You may not have actually gone through with yeah. it, but Gitmo for you. Right. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. Um, there was a case... Um, of some guys, I believe in Rod, no, Newburgh, New York. I don't know if you guys remember that case where, and uh, one of them, at least one of them was literally like mentally impaired. Like he was not even cognizant of what was going on. He was a little uh, delayed. And uh, basically they got an FBI informant and this guy, I, I think it committed crimes. And so he was like, I can, I can give you a terror plot you know, and basically manufactured this entire terror plot that has these guys, you know, locked up for life. That would not have happened at all before. A lot of these guys were actually new to Islam, but the FBI was so turned up after 9-11, trying to find terrorists, they decided to start creating them. Um, the Gretchen Whitmer thing, I, correct me if I'm wrong, I haven't followed it probably as closely as you all had. But my understanding was there was an individual who uh, reported some dangerous online activity. He was a, he was a military veteran. Uh, he just wanted to do some exercises in the woods with some guys. And they put him in this kind of online community. He, he reported some dangerous activity to the FBI. The FBI said, no, get into this group. And because of his military experience, they promoted him to second in command. And he became second in command in this uh, organization. 
and the FBI kind of, which is what the FBI does in law enforcement in general, is because mm -hmm. they want to get you on as many crimes as they possibly can um, without you having hurt somebody. You know what I mean? Like, they don't want to stop you before you even, you know, while you're just plotting, because then they can't arrest you for, you know, and charge you and you can get off on smaller uh, things and be out in six months. And they, they want to see it build up and build up. This is why they, you know, they tape mafia dons for years before they actually bring the indictment down. You know, right. they want to know you're going to kill somebody. You know, Donnie Brasco wasn't in there for a week. He was in there for years. So my understanding, and I could be wrong, hopefully you guys are looking it up, but my understanding is that uh, with Gretchen Whitmer, this guy got in and because of his military experience, they promoted him and they basically kept him in, you know, uh, the circle uh, up until the plot. And it turns out that they had several FBI informants who were involved in it. Um, yeah, but, BuzzFeed, BuzzFeed uh, News reported that some of those informants acting under the direction of the FBI played a far larger role than has previously been reported. Working right. on secret, they did more than just passively observe and report on the actions of the suspects. Instead, they had a hand in nearly every aspect of the alleged plot, starting with its inception. And, the, and it goes on to say the extent of their involvement raises questions as to whether there would have even been a conspiracy without them. So legitimate grievances, and I hope they yeah. get to the bottom of this. How would you like to be the one dope in the room and like everyone else around you is FBI and you find out <laughs> at the end? Like I was the only one who, who wasn't a yeah. government informant or an FBI agent. It's just yeah, amazing. I mean, uh, but I think that one dope has an argument if he has a good lawyer to get off. Well, that's you what they're what arguing. I mean? They are arguing and, in that, that in court that they were and, entrapped. And I think that one dope... Uh, probably would have done this you know what i mean it's not like he's an innocent guy but he's gonna you know I th and if i were his attorney you know i would fight to get him off 100 uh, percent but again the he, defendant, but that's, but that's that. the that's the that's the point of entrapment though jason is that you yeah. you wouldn't do it unless unless literally you like it's almost like leading For sheep sure. to the slaughter a lamb to the slaughter it, yeah. it, they wouldn't normally do it but they were basically given all the tools and sort of pushing that direction. Uh, and that's where you can say, hey, this person was under the influence of an FBI informant trying to get them to do crimes. I mean, it, sometimes all it does is takes takes inspiration. And if that inspiration is coming from an FBI informant yeah. to commit a crime, a felony of kidnapping the literal governor of a state that is obviously, that is a legitimate grievance to make. I'll, I'll tell you this. I will never defend the FBI. You know what I mean? <laughs> you, you will never get me to defend the FBI. I mean, <laughs> could it know, be me, Jason? Could it be me? <laughs> yeah, I, I, but, you know, uh, with a lot of the people that they've arrested, um, you know, it's, I don't know if we're up to like 500 people now. Um, none of those people seem to be connected to the FBI yet um yeah is the key word you know yeah 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 I, I don't know but um you know am i gonna completely discount it probably not but i think it's unlikely you know what i mean i i think you know i think that honestly the right has been grabbing at straws first it was blm that turned out not to be the case they they then it was antifa that turned out not to be the case and now it's the fbi We'll see, you know, uh, 
I'll never, like I said, I will never discount the FBI being involved or the FBI, you know, doing nefarious things after particularly what they've done, you know, in the civil rights movement, what they did to the black power organizations. Um, If, if anybody has watched, you know, um, you know, uh, Daniel Kaluuya, who gave an incredible performance as Fred Hampton, I was, I was suspicious that he wasn't going to do a good job. And I think he nailed it. Um, and you see what happened to Fred Hampton and a lot of the Black Panthers, a lot of the, the civil rights uh, heroes uh, before them. Uh, you know, it, it's hard to, to, you know, to defend the FBI and I won't do it. Um, is it possible? Yes. Should it be investigated? Yes. Why would you have Congress involved in an investigation? Because the FBI can't investigate itself. That's right. That's right. You That's know exactly, what I mean? Exactly so right. this is what so, this is what people make in local. One second, Vince, just real quick. Sure. Um, this is the argument that people make in terms of local policing. Is that the police, how can we trust the police to investigate themselves? You know you what I mean? Never can. I, <laughs> right. So that that's what, you know, uh, same thing with the FBI. The FBI is like, yeah, sure, we got it. You know what I mean? And right. It's like, you know, um, I, I this is why I think having Congress involved is is not a bad idea and having this this commission. Can I can I say that as we're talking about all this, I can't help but think like we're we're tapping into an important element of distrust that is factoring into a lot of the things that we're seeing in the United States right now. So our institutions are fundamentally untrustworthy, and they've earned that, so many of our institutions, but especially big, powerful institutions like the intelligence community, the Justice Department, the FBI. And it's not, you don't have to go back to the civil rights era, although you could. You'd think hopefully things have changed since J. Edgar Hoover. But then you watch what happened over the course of the Trump administration and before Trump came into office and the FBI's constant and routine and now public abuse of its power on behalf of the administration that they were serving before Trump got into office. Um, and it's no wonder that people are entirely skeptical of the last election. Yes, you can add Trump to the pile and the influence that he had over his own base, absolutely. But the skepticism of our institutions is super well-earned. Uh, and the FBI has played a huge role in that. I, I, Siraj, I just wanted to see what you think about that. Yeah, you know, I have been a big proponent of not dismantling the FBI, because I would never advocate for the dismantling of institutions, but at least for people to open their eyes and understand that things were broken way before Trump. You know, J. Edgar Hoover, you brought him up. Perfect example. This is someone who uh, wiretapped literally any person under the sun. Henry Kissinger. Even even people who literally just mentioned the word communism. Boom, yeah. you had a wiretap on you. Uh, it's just one of those things where like, you know, the FBI, they have never been one of these stalwarts, these, these beacons of like, of, 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 you know, serving justice. It's always been about how do we try to assert our power in a country where free speech could very well lead to the end of our Republic? Like that is something that I feel like the FBI has basically uh that's where i believe we've come to at this point um and i think there are forces within our institutions right now that believe that the american people have simply too much freedom and that needs to be limited and that goes back to uh 
uh, what was it? The um, COINTEL Pro, the investigations that uh, J. Edgar Hoover waged against communists in the United States that even in, that wrapped up uh, Martin Luther King Jr. simply because of his association with Stanley Levison, who previously was with the Communist Party of the United States. And then, of course, you have obviously this sort of focus on uh, the the collective of Trump supporters who are virtually seen as white supremacists, almost by and large by the FBI. And we also discount the fact that the uh, intelligence agencies spied on a presidential campaign um, through wiretaps involving two of the smallest individuals within the campaign, Carter Page and George Stephanopoulos. I'm sorry, not Stephanopoulos, Papadopoulos. Sorry, I got them confused. Um, <laughs> those two basically using that as sort of carte blanche to spy on the rest of the campaign. Uh, you know, people, if that happened to the Obama campaign, if that happened to the Biden campaign, Look, if we find out that the Trump camp, uh, the Trump administration spied on the Biden campaign, I tell you, people would be furious. They would be in the streets rioting just as much as you know, uh, people would be rioting uh, post, you know, everything that happened in the last year. Um, but one thing I have to point out here, and this is very crucial, um, everybody forgets about how the intelligence agencies failed the United States. Uh, when it came to weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. Right, right. Uh, that gets, no one remembers that. That happened less than 20 years ago. And the fact that we are still in Iraq, and of course there might be, you know, drawdown. We have Afghanistan that supposedly has an end date. But I'm not saying, we're not out of Afghanistan or Iraq until we're officially, until, we, you know, last person's out. So we're still there. Um, and I feel like, uh, people seem to just move the goalposts on what it means to be for the FBI to be good. Right. And, uh, or, or any intelligence agency to be good when really the, all the, the, the only interest that they've had to serve is the, um, sort of the interests of the bureau, unelected bureaucrats. So I, I just want to add one other thing while you guys are talking about, you know, um, the FBI and the Trump, uh you know surveillance um first of all you know i that whole time Siraj was speaking i was totally scared that somebody was going to come with a black hood and just like <laughs> put it over his head right no, um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh for 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 that isis flag you got in the back but <laughs> <laughs> but you know um of course, we know one of the things that's been monitored by the FBI and the right cheered was, you know, activists during during, uh, you know, Black Lives Matter activists and, you know, making this new category called Black Identity Extremists. Um, and a lot of these activists were just peaceful activists who had a political opinion and were expressing their uh, First Amendment rights, whether you agree with them or not. And one of the things that I think we need to unify on, and you know, uh, I think Vince and I hopefully agree here, and we can, you know, this show will be able to pull people together a little bit, is that you know your First Amendment rights need to be protected, you know, whether you whether I agree with them or not, yeah. you know. So initially, that initial ridiculous stop the steal uh, rally which I think was absurd. 
was absolutely protected under their First Amendment rights. And I will always advocate for them having the ability to do that or any other right-wing protest. Or as a matter of fact, I don't even care if it was a direct Ku Klux Klan rally. If you got the permits, you can you can rally and say what you know say what you want to say. You know what I mean? Um, I think that is what separates us from you know a lot of other countries where your first where your rights to assembly yeah. and free speech are not protected. Right. And the the fact that the right cheered, you know, or was you know okay with this new category of black identity extremists, which was totally meant to uh dissuade people from using their first amendment rights for something that they believed in i think was is really troubling all these people who scream about freedom you know um while all this happened from 2017 on um with with black lives matter uh was was really frustrating um i think we need to protect first amendment rights of everyone i agree um, i agree we, we shouldn't be in the business of surveying ideology I mean, right, absolutely. The, the and affiliation, think, even affiliation. You know what I mean? That that's not. You only, know, the yeah. fact that Siraj is part of ISIS is okay <laughs> as long as he doesn't commit a crime. That's right. But only. But here's here's where you want the FBI. It's like in the service of trying to prevent violence, right? So yeah. we, we saw. You know, last year we did see a bunch of riots in in cities across the country, and occasionally what you would see is the same guys would pop up, the same people would show up in multiple cities where violence was taking place. It does seem like a reasonable thing for the FBI to establish whether or not there's a link between a series of ongoing violence. That is that is well within the scope of what we'd expect a federal law enforcement agency to check out, interstate violence. But beyond that, I agree with you. I just think that, that once the government gets in the business of uh, policing ideology, then that is a deeply dangerous road, not only because they're in the business of trying to go after people for what they have the freedom to to express right through the first amendment mm -hmm. they also as siraj pointed out typically expand the definition of what it means to fit into that category beyond all reason but that doesn't matter because in the end your rights get robbed from you because you're referred to as a black identity extremist or you're referred to as a white nationalist or white supremacist without adequate basis to support that right so uh, an example of this is we're seeing that the militia groups are often lumped in with uh, white supremacist ideology, sort of flatly by the press, definitely, and, and worryingly so by the government at times. Now, they may or may not be informed by white supremacist ideology. There are, there are racial minorities who are members of militia groups who are not there because of any sort of white identity politics, but that's not the way that it's being treated, and it's being flattened into... Um, sort of meaningless, but hurtful weapons, I think, um, that we should be on guard for. I just want to say that Siraj is not a part of ISIS. He's a part of, <laughs> he's a part of nicest. nicest. Because he is, he is a really nice individual. Don't let the, don't uh, let the flag fool you. Um, and definitely check out Habibi bros. I, I, I just, even though I'm really upset because he never made any t-shirts for our, uh, in the death. balance. But the balance. I was, I was, I'm upset. I'm a little hurt by that. You chose that ball hey, Arab guy over me. Hey, 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 Jason. I we think crawled, it was racial discrimination. We crawled together so that we could walk together separately. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and um, you know, just just to to um, 
to Vince's point, um, and and just again to add affiliation into it, you can be a, a member of the Oath Keepers. You can be a member of uh, the Three Percenters. You can be a member of the Proud Boys. Um, there's nothing criminal about affiliation. Right. The problem uh, is when you start plotting to do things um, yeah. that are troubling. Um, and I think that, you know, the, the FBI has a history of punishing affiliation, particularly with, with black organizations. And when we look at, um, look at J. Edgar Hoover's career, he started his entire career with Marcus Garvey. That's literally a fact. Like he, it was black, you know, things that had to do with black identity that he started his career on. And then we see the FBI leaning back into that today. Um, you can be a white nationalist. I'm sure there are people who are white nationalists probably in the comments here. It doesn't like, you know, it, it's it's okay. <laughs> Thanks for that. That's <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I'm saying like, that's part of America, but you have the uh -huh. right, you have the right to, to believe what you want to believe and to have, you know, the views that you have. Like, did you say, I'm sorry, I think I just we also need to, I, I think we also need to recognize the fact that the term nationalist has by and large been given a bad rap because in this whole debate versus nationalism and globalism, right. nationalism simply means putting the interests of your country first ahead of every other country. And then since once you add the tag white to it, yeah, it becomes racially tinged. And unfortunately, there are a lot of people who are nationalists who are not white nationalists. Uh, I yeah. would actually argue that if you're a white nationalist, you're basically a white supremacist. And I feel it, nationalism itself, like being proud of your country, that shouldn't be criminal. That shouldn't be punished. But right. also trying to put the interests of your country ahead of those of, of other countries shouldn't be punished as well. Yeah, no, I, I don't think that that's technically what the definition of nationalism is. First of all, I think we have to start with the definition of nation. Um, nation is a group of people with, with similar interests. So that doesn't necessarily mean your country. You know what I mean? That can be, you know, uh, that can be your race. That can be your ethnicity. That can be your religion. You can be a national, you can be a Christian nationalist. Um, you can be a white nationalist, which has nothing to do with the United States or little or less to do with the United States and just about whiteness broadly. Um, no, for sure. I mean, borders. there are, I, I'd say that if anything, white nationalists would probably be in favor of a white ethno state. For sure. Yeah. And there, but there, but you are still a white nationalist. If you are, you don't necessarily want to kick all black people out of the United States, but you are concerned with uh, the white, the interests of white people above others, Okay. Even across I, I, I understand what you're saying. Okay. So what word what word do you think, Jason, would be a good substitute then for what um, Siraj described? Somebody who places their country's needs first. Um, I think that there is a difference between uh, a nationalist and a patriot. Um, and I think if uh, ahead of others, um, I don't know anybody uh, who would put the, the concerns of another country ahead of where they live. You know what I mean? I, I, I'm, I'm not aware of that in, in, 
in I think you know, I think there I think there are you know maybe there aren't people who want to put the interests of like say Europe ahead of the United States but I think in terms of putting say the interests of Europe on the same playing field as say like equating them say mm -hmm. through example like the Paris climate accord like that is a broad international agreement that involves many nations coming together to basically uh, fight to combat climate change by donating a certain amount of money. And then you have one central body basically deciding what should and shouldn't be acceptable to reduce our climate footprint. That I think is not putting the interests of uh, another country ahead of the United States, but it's, in in, it's putting the interests of a global body ahead of the United States. Okay. Um, so it's a very centralist, it's a central planning versus a decentralist, a decentralized look of governing. So like- also, When I think of nationalism, I also think of like sort of having, making national well-being a preeminent concern. It doesn't mean that it's the only concern, but it is, is a high one. So like, there's a lot of criticism that our establishment has been way too globalist rather than nationalist. Uh, for decades now, and in particular with issues like China and watching jobs being shipped overseas and the American middle class being hollowed out. Uh, those are the the impulses that are led by globalism, not nationalism, where you would well, place primary I, concern over the well-being of the people of the country you're in. Yeah, no, I, I think that, you know, definitely concern. I, I think that the, the argument isn't that uh, you want the the other country to do better than you. I think the, the argument is how to benefit our country. And some people believe that, you know, participating in a global economy actually helps our country more. Um, and there are people who are more isolationist who think, you know, hey, America first, America only, you know, let's do things within our borders uh, and, you know, only, you know, participate when we have right. to. And I think those are just two different approaches. I don't think that I, I, I'd say this is probably a good example. This is the one I can really think of that before the term nationalism was really used. I think of like Ram Paul when he ran for president in 2016. You know, he wanted to pull all troops out of Iraq and Afghanistan. And the term that they used for him was isolationist. He was an isolationist, not a nationalist. But and it's interesting because, you know, Trump had the same vision, but he was basically called, you know, I wouldn't say he was called a nationalist. It was sort of like one of the many labels that they attributed right. to Trump. But that is a very like similar vision, a similar ideology, but very different labels, isolationist versus nationalist. And it's just, I find it fascinating that that's how, you know, given the, the personality and the, the demagoguery that involved Trump, that was the label they used as opposed to like isolationist for Rand Paul. Yeah, I, I think that that's an interesting conversation. It's one that we're definitely going to have to have uh, with you again. We need to bring you back, Siraj. It has been so much fun. I love yeah. this discussion. Uh, I think that these discussions are productive. You know, for people who want to get outside of that echo chamber, we loved having you on. You're always fair to both sides, and that perfectly fits within uh, what we're doing here. Thank you, Siraj. And to everybody who is watching, you know, uh, you should thank this member of NISIS uh, as well. But also subscribe and like what we're doing here on Vince and Jason Save the Nation. 
Um, you can find us on the Daily Caller website, on YouTube, and on Facebook Watch, and anywhere you can find a podcast. We drop every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. We're going to have great interviews for you. We kicked it off with Siraj Hashmi. Couldn't have done any better than that. Um, peace out. We love you all.